This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily Unsolved, the story of the Birmingham Six. John Walker, Paddy Hill, Hugh Callaghan, Richard McElkenny, Jerry Hunter and William Power. Six men jailed for a crime they didn't commit. We were made scapegoats off just to appease the public, right up to the very highest of levels, because what they did to us, it couldn't have been done without the help and connivance of people in high places. Six men who served 16 years in one of the gravest miscarriages of justice in British history. But also six men who never gave up on proving their innocence. From day one, they kept going. They kept campaigning anybody who was anybody who was ever anywhere who would listen to them. On the 21st of November 1974, 21 people were killed when two bombs were detonated in the Mulberry Bush and Tavern in the Town pubs in Birmingham. It all went black and there was a big no- just It was massive noise and I started screaming and we heard people screaming and then we just went for the back door. Almost five decades later, nobody has been held responsible or paid for those crimes. I'm Siobhan Maguire and today on the Indo Daily, as part of our Unsolved series, we take a look at the story of the Birmingham Six. Joining me to talk us through the events is the Irish independence, John Downing. John, let's go back to 1974 and set the scene. It's the middle of the Troubles. So what was happening and how were people from Northern Ireland, especially Catholics, perceived in the UK? Well, you know, when I go, when I look back on, on those and re- read about these times, it was a grim and a gloomy time and a very fearful time because you never knew from one day to the next what new atrocity was going to be put out there. Uh, in the mid-70s, I used to go to England for various reasons. Uh, you would be invariably stopped, e- even if you were on the ferry with you know, a whole ferry load of people pulling into Hollyhead. Odds were you'd be pulled aside. They'd look for ID. They'd talk to you, the police, under the PTA, the Prevention of Terrorism Act. It was a very difficult time to live in England for Irish people because people suspected that they were going to be involved in in atrocities, in bombs, bombings and sabotage and all sorts of things. It was not a pleasant time to be Irish. And the British had good reason to be wary because the IRA were quite active at that time, weren't they? 
Absolutely. And they always had this idea. There, there was this thing about, so you, you kill a young lad from Scunthorpe who's, who has joined the army out of, uh, British army out of desperation sticks. He's in Belfast. He gets a bullet in the head. He gets two paragraphs in, in the British papers. So... What do you do? You take the war to what uh, what the British derisively or ethnocentrically call the mainland, the other island. And uh, anything you do over there has propaganda value, many multiples of whatever happens on the island of Ireland. We had an awful lot of Irish people living in the UK at the time. Can we can we look at Birmingham? Because that's what we're talking about today. What was a, a, a typical Irish community like there and how were they held up, I guess, by other communities? When I looked, they were there a very long time. They were there mainly in, in numbers since the post-famine time, the mid-1840s. Uh, they were there in very big numbers. They had Irish centres. They had GAA clubs. They were very well organised. I remember working for the Kerryman going to cover events in Birmingham. Uh, you will find if you go back over the papers, Irish politicians were always very careful of the Irish community in Britain. They would go there frequently. They would go as guest speakers and guests because they knew there was a spin-off on the home front politically. John, when we talk about the Birmingham Six um, and the, the, the men wrongfully accused of this crime, do we know anything about them prior to the 21st of November 1974? Well, I suppose, Siobhan, the most important thing to say about uh, the, the, the whole thing that happened in Birmingham is this was a, a shocking uh, a calamity, a, a complete atrocity by the IRA. 21 people were killed. Uh, uh, more than 160 people were maimed in two pubs. So we have to keep that in mind. It has never been resolved. As to the six who were convicted wrongly and spent 16, 17 years in jail as a result, um, we, we know that they were just average people. Uh, they were from Belfast. They were nationalist, Catholic in origin. They had, most of them had lived in Birmingham like the rest of the Irish people for very many years. They got on with their lives. They did their work. They went for a pint, whatever it was. But inevitably, of course, they, coming from Belfast, being nationalists, they knew IRA people. They were at school with them. They lived round the corner from them. They lived down the road from them. And five of the six on the evening in question had the misfortune to be going uh, to a funeral in Belfast of an old neighbour and an old friend who was an IRA activist who blew himself up with his own bomb in Coventry some time before. So wrong place, wrong time, wrong people, wrong accent. John, can we talk about that evening of November 21st? Where were these six men? What were they doing? Yeah, it, it is quite interesting. Talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was a Thursday night, 21st of November 1974, usually in those days, pay night, 
when people on a, on a weekly wage were paid. The five were actually on their way. They took a train at Birmingham Street news, uh, news Station to go to Belfast to get to the ferry and go on to Belfast. As I was saying earlier, they, they were childhood friends of this guy, uh, James McDade, an IRA man who blew himself up with his own bomb in Coventry. The sixth one of them, Hugh Callahan, was out for a point in Birmingham. The five who were travelling were pulled aside at Haysham for a, a routine uh, security screening while they were being questioned by the local police officer news came through of this shocking two bombs in Birmingham and what do we know about the the bombings themselves John can you talk to me a little bit do we know what times they went off the locations do we know of the two pubs were they busy this is a great point because like a lot of these things the IRA responsible for this unholy murder were equally ham-fisted and incompetent in they gave warnings. At basically what happened was, sometime after 8pm, the fellow manning the phone at the Birmingham Post and Mail, the local paper, received a call. A man with an Irish accent said, there's a bomb planted in the rotunda, there's a bomb in New Street, it's in the tax office. The code word is double X. The call was the at the Rotunda. Yes. And of course the licensed house, the Mulberry, is at the back of the Rotunda. And of course we've only got two minutes call and one couldn't do anything in the time. The explosions were occurring almost at the time the calls were received. So it's a useless warning? Yes. We had no time. As far as we were concerned, we could take no action. That was completely unhelpful because basically about 10, 15 minutes later, Two ferocious, two huge bombs went off in two pubs in the centre of the city. The first in the Mulberry Bush had killed 10 people. Taxi driver George Knight was close to the scene of the first explosion at the Mulberry Bush Bar. The front of the Mulberry Bush was completely missing. There was bodies lying on the pavement, bodies over seats and everything. A young couple came screaming along with a girl in tears who'd seen a lady with both her legs missing. The second was the tavern in the town and that killed 11 people. And there were two ferocious, two huge bombs. Essentially, it amounts to no warning bombs in practice. And the fallout and the carnage uh, and the loss of human life, thanks to the IRA, was unpardonable. Let's talk about the six men and how they were treated after they were arrested, John, because the the information we've heard over the years is one of a pretty horrific ordeal that lasted days. Absolutely. Weeks, in fact. Uh, The six, Paddy Hill, Jerry Hunter, Johnny Walker, Hugh Callaghan, Richard McElkenny and Billy Power. And they were the, the five, uh, five detained and uh, the, the, the six arrested in Birmingham. They were held for weeks on end by the uh, Birmingham infamous, the West Midlands uh, special wing of the police who were absolutely infamous. There are photographs which were published soon after. I remember first seeing them in a Sunday paper and being utterly shocked. These people were brutalised. They were battered. They were beaten. 
They were tortured. They were threatened. They were intimidated. They were put in fear of their lives. You're quite right because anyone who remembers those mugshots show photos of six men who have been through the absolute wars. Absolutely. Doctor came around in about an hour, opened the door, said, what's your injuries? And we're standing there. He took half the... What the bruises he took was caused by the police. What was running with blood and and whatnot, he just ignored, didn't want to know, because he knew it was caused by the prison officers, you know. If he had done his job right, we wouldn't have done the sentence. It's as simple as that. Correct. Eventually, the police got some of the men to confess. What do we know about what happened? Four of the six confessed, signed confessions. They later always insisted under considerable duress and and force majeure uh, threats to their lives, literally. But they implicated all six. Those confessions really were the cornerstone of the convictions, but they were also buttressed by forensic evidence, which basically stated that they had traces of nitroglycerine on their hands, some of them. And in terms of what we now know about their prison sentence, they're they're 16 and a half years locked up. I mean, these men never once faltered in proclaiming their innocence. Well, they from day one, they kept going. They kept campaigning. Anybody who was anybody who was ever anywhere who would listen to them was lobbied. Pretty early on, the Irish authorities, largely on an informal basis, accepted the truth of what they were saying. Uh, Some of them, they were just on a permanent letter writing campaign. And this is where you get, uh, enter a man called Chris Mullen, a journalist, no connections with, with Ireland, the IRA, republicanism, any such thing, who just believed that there was a shocking miscarriage of justice. Arguably, one of the worst miscarriages of justice in the Western world, which purports to support democracy, the rule of law and justice. From the start, as I said, I said to Bailey, they had us picked out, they told us that, and they told us that they were only interested in getting convictions and convictions. We were made scapegoats off just to appease the public. And it's been connived with right up to the very highest of levels. We would have had in Ireland at the time several high profile marches. One of the kind of main chants from those marches, as I recall watching news growing up, was free the Birmingham Six. Traffic in the city centre was diverted and some bus services were disrupted. But Gardaí say the protest passed off peacefully. Absolutely. And the Guildford Four and there were others. Also, the infamous uh, West Midlands British police. It was a very sore point. And of course, there were every Saturday night for many, many years, there were collections in pubs for the Birmingham Six to fund their campaign to keep the thing going. Can we talk then about the release? 
how it eventually came about. And then I'm sure a lot of people listening will recall the very powerful statements from the men after their release. Um, I, that, those speeches outside the Old Bailey, for example. Well, absolutely. And it took until March 1991 for the Birmingham Six to be freed after their convictions were quashed. They served nearly 17 years behind bars. Um, they they were greeted by cheering crowds. Uh, Chris Mullen, who went on to be uh, a Labour MP and a junior minister, I had the privilege of meeting him very briefly within the last year and he told me... Sorry, I'm going to get a bit emotional here. He told me it was one of the greatest days of his life and it was an extraordinary day. But... It had to come. One of the things that happened was the the confessions eventually under discovery, the thinness of the confessions, the way they were choreographed and forced on the people who, who ultimately signed them came fully uh, to light. Also, the thinness of the forensic evidence, which basically sh- showed that any one of a number of simple proprietary items could have given the impression of traces of nitroglycerine. British justice must be in tatters after today. They must be. There's no argument about it. It's not as if the evidence wasn't there. The evidence has been there all the time. And it's come out in that court of appeal. How much they had away on us. The evidence that would have showed that we were innocent of contamination of any explosives. The most famous one was a thing done by a television documentary in 1985, which showed it was possible uh, to come from a a pack of old playing cards. Of course, that led to the derisory stuff from the the Tory press who said, of course, the Birmingham Six were only playing cards, you know. But it was as simple as that. And they did nearly 17 years in jail because of it. John, Maybe you don't want me to ask you uh, some more about that interview with Chris because I can see that it visibly moved you when you were relaying his words. For him, what he did, he was pretty much kind of a solo artist in terms of trying to push this out, keep on the story, let all of us know what was going on. Yes, absolutely. And he was hugely courageous and he paid a price. He was repeatedly accused of being, at minimum, an IRA sneaking regarder, which was the phrase at the time, and an apologist and all sorts. And he became a target for the lower end of the British tabloid press. But he persisted. People like that in life, they're invaluable. Can we talk then about after the release and the six men were able to get their stories out once and for all in their own words? I mean, there were myriad interviews. Um, There was a fantastic Late Late Show interview with three of the men. As far as I'm concerned, there's no sense in feeling hatred or bitterness or carrying it around with you because the longer you carry it, the more you're going to fight yourself and the people around you and the people you love. They brought us into the kind of day-to-day living as a wrongly convicted person in a British jail and yet somehow they all made it through. 
Somehow they did, but at a price, uh, a lot of personal loss to them. Some of them, to varying degrees, were very damaged people for a very long time. And they had difficulties with personal relationships. They had difficulties with, with partners, with marriage, with children. There was uh, an inquest for the families in 2019 and there were uh, four potential IRA names uh, linked to the bombings. And this is long after the six men's names have been cleared. But the, the legacy, the shadow of those bombings will always live on and those men will always be associated with it. Absolutely. And I mean, there have been, there were even some uh, very eminent lawyers who tried to revisit it from the other side, making various points that that they had to have some implication in the whole thing. And it carries on. And their families, for example, many of them, they had to leave the greater Birmingham area and go live absolutely elsewhere and so on. The fallout from it and the fallout for uh, Interpersonal British-Irish relations were, you know, were huge. And 31 years ago, here we are still telling their story and still highlighting the injustice of it all. Absolutely. And it's still rattling around in various forms, rattling around the courts. Uh, There are various sidebar issues as yet to be uh, to be uncovered. It was in and out of the courts right up, you know, for all of those 16 and a half years. It persists. There were attempts to get Chris Mullen to reveal his sources. He spoke to IRA people. By the way, I nearly missed this. The IRA were their conduct through this was equally mendacious. Mendacious, by the way, is a posh word for lying. They lied and they lied and they lied and they used it as a propaganda tool. And they did that bomb, those bombings, and they killed those people, you know, and that should rest on their record and not be forgotten. My thanks there to the Irish independence, John Downing, I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was produced by Tabitha Monaghan with recording by John Smith. Clips from RTE Archives and Independent.ie If you like the Indo Daily, don't forget to rate, follow and leave us a review. And stay tuned for more in our Unsolved series. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, could you spare us five seconds of your time and vote for us for the Listener's Choice Award at irishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote.